0: Today's episode is sponsored in part by Palo Alto Networks and its Prisma SASE, where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. Watch the new Palo Alto Networks virtual event On Demand to hear how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization. See how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateway, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Watch On Demand at paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash SASE signature moment.
1: Improve your network automation from one-off scripts only you can use to safe, robust automations you can share with your entire IT organization with Itential. Find out more at www.itential.com slash packetpushers. That's www.itential.com slash packetpushers.
2: Welcome to Packet Pushers Heavy Networking. Today we're returning to the past with a round table. We've got a bunch of networking people randomly selected from our Slack channel. When I say randomly, I mean they volunteered to uh, appear. Joining us today is Brian Ward, John Howard, and Lindsay Hill. You may have heard some of these people, if, I think they've been on before, but gentlemen, thank you very much for coming on the show today. We'll talk about where people can find you back towards the end. So this is a round table and just the conversations, the topics are selected by the guests on the show. Now, Brian, you were a willing victim for the first topic. You said, why it's always their network. Why don't you, you kick off the discussion?
3: Yeah, thanks, Greg. So- I had this uh, this realization or this idea uh, a couple of years ago, and I've been hashing this out in my my head ever since. And, and I I think my thought process is coherent enough to to share at this point. So, as network professionals, we know that people are always blaming the network, or in my line of work, the Wi-Fi, for pretty much all of their tech trouble. It's not just end users, but other IT professionals. Um, mm-hmm. Including some that I consider very knowledgeable, often blame the network for all of their problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll even admit to doing it myself from time to time. You know, if if I know that my colleagues are making route switch changes, uh, 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 you know, within 30 days of a problem I'm having having myself, I'll even say, "Hey, uh, is is there something up with the network?" But this this one specific story comes to mind. Where uh, a very seasoned server admin had been troubleshooting an application issue for well over a week, um, mm. he, you know, he he reached out to the network team, claimed he looked everywhere for the root cause, and was insistent the network was the only thing remaining to troubleshoot. Right. Yeah. And to make a long story short, no surprise to anyone listening here, the network was not the issue. Uh, even more surprisingly, it wasn't even DNS. Net booy net boss <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't that long ago um, but it, it it turned out that the service on uh for the application on the server had its config deleted during a, a an update, yeah,
2: yeah,
3: so the app wasn't even listening on the TCP port anymore. it was just not there so it was that specific incident that really started this thought in my head um, about why people blame the network and I think the reason is it's because oftentimes the network is the part that they don't understand or they have the least skill in it being able to troubleshoot it. Hmm. You know, us network engineers, we live and die by the OSI model. You know, we, we know it like the back of our own hand, but most other IT disciplines don't really think of the OSI model once they get their A plus or net plus exams well early on in their careers. You know?
2: Yeah. I think, I think for a lot of other disciplines, they don't, like the OSI model is relevant to us. I I don't find the, the OSI model very relevant myself. I personally think of, I'm more of a DOD model. So before the OSI model, there was the DID, which is the uh, five layers. Mm-hmm. And it was physical, logical, network, applica- uh, session, and then applications. So the, you could argue that the top three layers of the OSI model are committees, a committee decision. In other words, Mm -hmm. somebody wanted to whine about it and say, oh, but, but, and they went, all right, you can have your extra layers. If We can just go home, you know, sort of thing. But I don't think networking people have a much more structured troubleshooting than most other disciplines. And we have to because, um, does that make sense?
3: It, It makes sense to me. You know, I, I I agree with the, the the more five layer model um the the yeah. way I the way I teach this to uh to students and junior engineers is yeah the OSI model is what you need to pass the cert exam but in reality nobody uses the presentation layer anymore I mean I, I can't even remember the last time I logged into a remote X11 session you know that that's really no, the only I, thing I can think of that still uses that layer in its architecture. Definite.
2: It's been a while since I've logged in <laughs> using MOP over DeckNet. To be fair, but no. <laughs> I think the challenge here is that you've got this issue where, which I often describe as mean time to innocence. The mm-hmm. problem with the network is that we very rarely can sit there and say it's not the network with a high degree of confidence, because it could be. There's so many security firewalls, threat detection. You know, something could be filtering a packet, blocking a packet, dropping a packet. A load balancer could be doing something, you know, like load balancers can do weird things. And up until very recently, we haven't had the ability to do a lot of monitoring. So is that a viable excuse? Like, is it saying we've just never had the troubleshooting tools until recently?
3: I think we've we've always had the troubleshooting tools. I think just in recent years, the tools have gotten better. You know, we, we can use uh various software applications out there to that gather log data and metrics and give us a fancy graph and says this is what's going on but we could have come to that same conclusion ourselves 10 years ago via command line output mm. so I, 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 and and you bring up a, an interesting point where you know w- when people come to the network team saying we've got a problem we don't immediately dismiss them and say well, of course it's not the network mm. but other disciplines often do.
4: I think there's definitely, sorry, there's definitely some truth to say to the point that um, uh, the network being the bottom layer of the, of the infrastructure quite often tends to mean then that so many things are dependent on what the network is doing, that it's very easy for um, people to exhaust some areas of investigation quickly and then lean into, well, it must be the network is the only thing left. And to your point, you know, you had a, with your story, you were saying that, you know, the guy checked everything. And then when you looked even closer, it, it wasn't the network, it was a configuration file. And one of the things that's a bit disappointing is that um, uh, far too many areas of uh, of network engineering, uh, should I say, far too many areas of uh, IT engineering, unfortunately, uh, are, are spread so thin now that uh, having a deep quantity of knowledge in a particular area is limited. So there's a a lot of talk, I think um, Ethan used to talk about this on the the, the data noughts with good old days uh, about T-shaped engineers. How you'd have a very broad experience in some areas and a very deep experience in another. And in the network layer, I think we've probably got a very deep T if you get my drift. And in some other areas, I mean, there's always going to be that classical argument between storage and network or virtualization and network. Some of those areas are either uh, lacking in some of the depth in those areas, or maybe it's just that people haven't had the opportunity and the training to get to uh, the same layer.
1: Yeah, I I think a lot of folks that start their IT careers don't start out in networking. They start out with doing services, um, service administration of some kind, working on file and print and uh, and so on and then they grow into networking over time and so by the time you get to networking you've got this background in what it was like to stand up a service and have that daemon running and know that it was listening and check out netstat and know that it's sitting there uh, waiting for an incoming socket and how to do a local host connection and make sure that it's responding and check the server logs i'm seeing inbound connections and all of that stuff has becomes part of it uh, my experience as a network engineer like brian that scenario you uh, you gave where is it the network? We've checked everything else. Well, I mean, obviously they didn't check everything else if the thing wasn't even listening on the socket. My word, they didn't even get down to the basics. Is there a process running? Is it listening? I mean, it, it ends up becoming the, the role of the network engineer to, yes, don't assume it isn't the network. You got to, you know, do do your homework and your you due diligence there. But then to know if it isn't the network, what might it be? Can you point that person who's administrating the server or the cloud service or whatever it is in the right direction so that they can maybe figure out the thing that they didn't know? A lot of times the network person seems to be the most senior person on the team with the most experience.
3: Yeah. And, and I think that and what John was just talking about is a is a great segue into my, uh, the crux of my thought here, where when people come and blame the network for you know whatever problem they're having that day it's try try to think of it from a different context it's it's not that people are saying oh you've done a bad job with that network of yours um but it's i think it's more that because network engineers are trained in the OSI model and trained in troubleshooting. I mean, if, if you remember the old CCNP uh, exams, the troubleshoot textbook is the biggest out of the series. Mm. That was my favorite exam, yeah. that one. That was lots of fun. <laughs> that
2: <laughs> was it's the like, only one that was worthwhile. Because <laughs> I was, I was, I'd
5: been doing lots of operational work. So it's, you know, it's like, oh, I've seen this. Oh, yeah, this looks familiar. Oh, yeah, this is good. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah.
3: Yeah. So I I think when when folks are blaming the network and coming to the engineering team for help, it's it's not that they're saying the network is broken. It's just they don't really know a better way to ask for help. They don't know how to explain what the issue is that they're having just because they're not familiar with the vocabulary. You know, you mentioned things like sockets uh, and, you know, layer four. To a a relatively junior application engineer, their their eyes are going to gloss over.
2: Yeah. Have you ever tried talking to them about a netstat command and they and they go like, "Oh my, oh what? What's the net?" Go like, you know, and they uh, there's things like that. Um, I also think um, one of my hypotheses is that the network goes wrong so rarely, so it you very rarely get a chance to blame the network compared to. A failed hard drive or whatever. So if you've actually if you've actually been um, somebody who administers a you know an application or some sort of infrastructure, by comparison the network fails much less often than other parts. And so there's always an assumption that um, they don't know how to fix it or they don't know what a network outage looks like or don't know that. Now that is less true if you have a complex data center setup where you have firewalls, load balancers you know, inline threat detection, that all gets a bit weirder, right? If you can just, if all you're doing is forwarding packets, it's not so difficult. But when you get into a complex data center infrastructure, it's certainly possible for the load balancers to be doing something weird because, well, a lot of people use a brands of load balancers that aren't very stable and not very reliable. And they have, one of the things I've seen network engineers do, if they don't understand it, they don't spend a lot of time understanding how to troubleshoot it. Does that make sense? If you give somebody a really complex application firewall, they just sort of it's working. Leave it alone. <laughs> Does that makes
5: sense. Uh, turn those features off for a start. because try and get yeah. the performance I need. I <laughs> used to be back in my old Checkpoint days. Was, uh, you know, the be whenever it tried to do advanced protocol inspection or something, that was there's always going to be problematic.
4: Make the fans go louder. Mm.
5: Yeah. yeah, it's,
4: it's CPU usage up, throughput down.
5: I think that scale thing that Greg touched on is important though in a simple application environment. Yeah. Network issues are less common. Um, when you've got, it's like I deal with a fairly distributed set of applications. Um, I'm really lucky that there's a lot of people with T-shaped skills work here, a lot of very smart people. So if someone who primarily looks at an application talks to me about a network problem, I'm lucky that they have probably already thought a bit about it. Um, There was an issue a couple of weeks ago, which was in part my fault, and it was the network. Um, One of those horrible gray failures, and those are the ones that are, even with all the best tools in the world, those are the worst ones to try and diagnose. If the link had just failed completely, it would have been easy. Everything would have worked. Um, Mm. In this case, it was some packet loss on one link, but with no other, no monitoring was, nothing on the boxes themselves was indicating errors or anything like that. It was more just, we're looking again. going, no, there's packet loss on this link. Let's get traffic off that link. Horrible one to figure out, actually. But like I said, I'm, I'm lucky that the people I work with, a lot of them, if they come to me with a network problem, there is a reasonable chance there is something going on. That, or it's just, hey, some of this is really complicated and it's hard to try and sit there and work through what exactly is going wrong.
2: Uh, I'm going to be a little a little spiteful here. I've also worked in companies that, the The people in other parts of the team, let's just say that their expertise was limited and their experience was short and it was just easier to blame someone else and hope that it wasn't them being incompetent. That's I've worked for a lot of dysfunctional companies, I'll be honest. Um, I had the fortune, misfortune, I don't know, um, to work for companies and sometimes people just come and say, it's the network and then while you're taking the pain... They're in the background with a a textbook out trying to work out, you know, or trying to Google something on the internet to find an answer, and they're not getting the pressure of somebody else's. That unreasonable?
4: One of my favorite tickets I ever received from uh, from an end user within my system was just titled Problem of Network. (laughs) And uh, this spawned my blog name, (laughs) (laughs) problemofnetwork.com, because... It was ludicrous that we would be sent this um, this ticket that just said we have uh, diagnosed a problem of network, and I I promise you it ended with please can you do the needful, which <laughs> if you're playing <laughs> uh, network engineer ticket bingo is ticking a lot of boxes, guys.
0: Yeah.
4: I think it is fair to sort of criticise uh, other areas of, of of IT infrastructure for 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 failures and lack of knowledge, but it is also a little bit of a grumpy old man act, act, you know, it's the kind of thing that we all do when we kind of have been in this industry long enough. It's very easy to complain, but I think in truth, it is the the network has become more complex over the last five to 10 years, particularly when you consider things like UVP and VXLAN and trying to do layer two mobility and enterprise networks, you know, uh, it is always going to be the case that this is complicated. And unfortunately I think uh, Russ White was, was quite correct when he he speaks about the, he bemoans the slow and painful death of uh, quality engineering, where people are no longer going into the detail of how a protocol works. They're plugging and playing, and when it all dies on them, they're kind of struggling because they don't understand how this thing works. The quality and the quantity of people who are CCIE grade, and I use that you know knowing it's a Cisco term, is diminishing in the industry, unfortunately, because it's a little bit harder because of how wide that t has got
1: exactly john exactly i no No. i i I agree with john um because it was hard before so it was hard when it was just vlans so i don't know half or more of connectivity problems dealing with something as straightforward as a vmware cluster would be tied to vlans not being tagged correctly i'm feeding you a trunk you got to tag them these are the numbers and then working with them to get the v-switch configured correctly that seemed to be half of it and that was like very difficult for everyone to wrap their heads around if you weren't the network engineer now as as john was just pointing out you begin to add VXLAN, evpn and uh, you know these more common overlay technologies that we're seeing for segmentation and security and so on now when you have a connectivity problem you really can't automatically reflexively say it ain't the network because. I know. You don't know, actually. It uh, And there's I'm seeing a a growth in troubleshooting tools that are available now. Do you actually have end-to-end connectivity? Because it may or may not be tied to you know, the wires and the underlay and then the overlay, but then also the policies that are uh, tied in as well that could be dropping traffic at certain places if it's not all right. And that's not what we used to see. It used to be a lot of the filtering was done way out at the edge. You could kind of assume... As long as you had the plumbing right in the middle, everything was going to be connected okay. And the problem wasn't the network, it was something else. Now, I don't think it's as straightforward as that.
0: Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Palo Alto Networks. 2023 is a year when companies are going to need to do more with less. As businesses grapple with economic uncertainty, it's more critical than ever to consolidate fragmented security and networking solutions to reduce operational complexity and costs. Palo Alto Networks has a new virtual event on its Prisma SASE where AI-powered innovation takes center stage. You can watch this event on demand and see how ZTNA 2.0, Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and SD-WAN deliver exceptional security and ROI. Hear how the latest innovations in SASE can help your organization automate costly and complex IT operations with AI-powered digital experience management, Connect and secure branch offices and the hybrid workforce with SD-WAN, ZTNA 2.0, and Cloud Secure Web Gateways, and unlock better ROI through consolidation of point solutions with Prisma SASE. Watch this event on demand at paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sASE dash signature dash moment. That's paloaltonetworks.com slash engage slash sASE dash signature dash moment. And now, back to the podcast. we
5: pushed more complexity into, say, the data center network and honestly, some of the vendors, their code quality has been very poor. You know, it's bad enough if I've misconfigured something, but some of the bugs I've seen from some of our vendors are like, oh, so like, how does anything ever work ever? Um, mm. And that's <laughs> and you know we yeah when they were just doing simple switching and routing, they were fine. When they're trying to do underlays and overlays, yeah, maybe things don't always. T- what they seem anymore. And maybe the the outputs and the monitoring is telling you one thing, but actually something else is going on. So, yeah, I think but one thing I was thinking about before, though, was um, in terms of why you might, you've got a problem to solve. Why do you go to a network person anyway? I think this is what sort of touched on earlier was often the network person has a reasonably broad view of what's going on across the company. And they've mm. got a, you know, they've just got a fair idea of how things hang together, and so often they're a good person to just go and chat to. But say, hey, I've got this problem. Maybe they don't know the specifics, but they they've got an idea of how it hangs together. They've probably been around. They've probably seen something like this before. You know, it's almost like I'm not blaming the network. I just kind of want that person to give me a hand with whatever problem it is I've got.
3: <laughs> yeah, and 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 that's exactly where I was going with this. Where you know, oftentimes when people are blaming the network. They're really just asking for help. Right. They're they're asking for a seasoned troubleshooter exactly. to to join forces with them. So I don't know. I, I wonder if it's if it's just a, a cultural thing where it's, you know, why can't you just say, Hey, can you give me a hand? rather than network problem, please fix.
1: I, I, I well, used to I'm, look at those t- kind of tickets defensively and get be like, Oh geez, here we go again. You know, now I got to prove it's not me. You know, it was more like a blame us versus them kind of thing. Then I realized sometime later, if they call me or they send me a ticket and say, I, do we have a network issue? I took it more like, oh, let's work together and fix the problem. I don't think we have a network problem, but can you hang on the phone with me for about 10 minutes? Let's walk through some things and see what's going on and then do some testing and then make it a team effort. Not us versus them, but whoever the other person is in that other silo, because we still haven't managed to shake all the silos. It doesn't seem like Uh, work together to figure out the problem. Uh, I, if I can demonstrate that the packets are getting from here to here, you should be able to see this. Can you see that? Yes, no. And then then it's then it's working together to solve the problem and not that continue of throw it over the wall. I don't want to see this ticket anymore. It's the network problem. It's a network problem uh, signed. It's not a network problem. Back to you, which just goes nowhere other than punt the thing for two days before it's back in your lab.
5: I I think that's that cultural thing that Greg was hinting at before. i not hinting at Greg's outright saying. Um, it was that, <laughs> cul- that cultural thing. Like Greg, I've worked in a few different places, not as many as him. But um, some places, the, the culture is very much, I only care about my thing. I mm. only care about my little piece and getting that ticket out of my queue. Mm. Uh, other places, and like I said earlier, I'm lucky enough to work in a good place at the moment, other places, it's a problem. We've got to solve it. We'll figure it out. You know, maybe some people know more about one domain than than another, but it's fine. We're gonna we're gonna work together and fix the problem. So that how exactly you fixed all of those cultural issues, eh, that's a whole broader <laughs> broader problem.
1: and the the, the the ticket problem is a thing. Like if you're measured on the number of tickets you close, that's gonna enforce a certain yeah. kind of behavior. If you're not, and your incentive is let's solve the problem because that's what's good for the business, then you as an, as the network engineer have more freedom to, to do what I would consider the right thing. Let's be a facilitator to get the problem solved, whether it's the network or not. If there's a way we can impact what's going on in these other IT teams and get it resolved, then go for it. Let's do it. But again, you get to, if you're, if you're measured on closing tickets, then nope, not the network. I checked this. I checked this. Not me. Done. Closed. Boom. And then you go on with your life, which sucks for the business. It's no good.
2: So I wanted to come back to what you said before about people saying, you know, bemoaning the lack of skilled engineers and the fact that people are losing certain talents. I actually disagree very strongly with that with that premise. And I'll I'll use a story to explain it. So back at the turn of the century, when cars were just starting to be a thing, they used to have chauffeurs. And do you know what a chauffeur means? A chauffeur is the French word for heater-upper. Because Hmm. in those days, the diesel engines, the glow plugs would be cold. And if you wanted to get the car working, they had to go out and literally heat the engine by hand for it to start. And so the chauffeur was primarily just an operational task to be able to say the you know the and you've seen this in the movies, James go and get the car around, right? Well that was a half hour job. They would go off and get ready, you know, back a bag or whatever. And then they would the the chauffeur would go out and get the car started, which was actually a, a 30 to 60 minute job, heating the glow plugs and then turning it over and and then the car would pull up with the engine running and away it would go. And the second thing and the most and an also an equally important thing that the chauffeur did was when the car broke down, their job was to sit with it so that it didn't get stolen or broken, right? So I see similarities between that and where we came from in networking. A lot of people who were in networking, say 10 years ago, were firefighters. They were sitting there waiting for the network to break. And their primary job was that if the network broke, they were there to fix it, like to have a specialist set of skills. To troubleshoot and activate a, a reconciliation that would repair the network. The
3: that, old data that, center yeah. operator.
2: Yeah. Or, uh, you know, but a lot of third level engineers used to just sit around waiting for something to break. And then we used to give them projects and stuff like that to fill in their spare time. But, you know, basically that was they they were there because the data center had to run 24 seven. You couldn't outsource that for most oh. of the time. So people, you used to have these people sitting on staff. Whose job was to fix the WAN, if it ever broke, because it was a specialist skill. And I think so, fine, when cars were rare and it was accepted and the value, but as we get to modern, as networking changes and as the industry and the the value of technology to businesses change, not everybody can afford to have a chauffeur to go and start the car and to sit with it when it breaks down. Right. And that's where we are with networking. You don't want to have a mechanic with you in the car just to drive to work that's impractical but you also don't want to have the you know to be a driver of a car you shouldn't need to have specialist skills just to drive a car to get to the shops right and that is where we are with networking we just because you drive a car doesn't make you a mechanic the reverse condition is also true just because you don't need to be a mechanic to drive a car and therefore cars are available to everybody we only teach you enough. And some people learn more and some people don't. But there are they access, you know, professionals or they access third party services. That is where we are with networking. No, the days where everybody needed to have deep technical skills around a protocol. That's like saying, I can't use Microsoft Learn unless I can write C. Right. And that's obviously in my mind a dumb thing to say because if you don't understand c++, you can't understand how to use microsoft word or microsoft excel. So I think we have to get away from this old idea that everybody needed to be an expert to do anything. The reality is where we're headed with software defined era there is going to be a spectrum of people who who use the software to troubleshoot effectively because they understand the the guts of what's actually happening in the background. But there's also going to be a whole bunch of people who just know how to drive a car and and slam it into a wall.
3: Yeah, but I you know, I, I... I agree. You don't I don't think you need to be an expert in order to use technology, but you know, people who drive cars, if the car runs out of gasoline, they're not going and blaming the guy who paved the road.
4: Nor are they raising a ticket asking someone to fill it up for them.
2: Yeah, they're taking right. responsibility of themselves. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I think so, your model only think- works for small shops, Greg. I think that agree yeah. I agree with that if you're buying meraki or ubiquity or something where they've taken all the nerd knobs away by and large they give you a nice ui click the things do the default stuff we want you to do that we know we're going to work and that's it and as soon as you need to get into larger scale systems design as soon as you have specific business requirements or whatever it is like like brian at an academic institution where he's got very specific requirements that he's got to meet for the campus for lots of people at large scale you need an adult on site, you need the mechanic on site, because there are design requirements that have to put in place to build a system that can scale and that can grow and that can change so that you're not boxed into a corner. And you do need to understand what's going on and the changes that are coming and how to get ready to adopt the new standard that's going to have a big impact on how your, your business is going. On the other hand, you know, your point, stands for again those smaller shops where their needs are simple and predictable then Mm. fine you can put the average consultant in to get things up and running for that mom and pop but i don't think as soon as you get to a mid mid mid-size enterprise and higher you you, you've got to have a grown-up on site that really does understand things deeply or have access to that expertise if they're not employed by you've got a consultant on hand that can come in and give you that usually a reseller
2: yeah yeah that's where the yeah.
1: resellers add
2: value yeah in a in a sort of a way except you you don't have control of the when that resource is available you're yeah, sharing or, it or, so or even a vendor it.
1: employee you know back in the days when i was doing lots and lots of f5 work i had a guy that was my regional experts and when we had something funky going on yeah. like we had something very strange going on with certificates one day uh, and we could not you know we were not dumb people and we knew certificates man we could not figure out what the heck the f5 was doing he knew exactly what was going on in seconds. I told him the scenario. Bang! He told us what it was, how to fix it. I don't remember the details anymore. It doesn't matter. It was that he was someone we could reach out to to solve that rather arcane problem.
2: Yeah, that's gone away too. The vendors have been cutting headcount so far. To they've been yeah you know, working great. to increase profit margins lately, and that idea that there is, you know, a vendor representative available to you—that's all gone. I think. What What are you? Huh.
5: Is that I, a fair statement? I, what is that your experience? I I do have some of my vendors when I reach out to them to the, say to the SE with a some random question, they get back to me pretty quickly with good answers. But you're uh, people, you're companies, a... companies, we're, not, we're not that big. We're big, yeah. but we're not that big. Uh, mm-hmm. Like we have at less than two thousand network devices. Right? We're not mm-hmm. we're not huge. Uh, we're just a lot of bandwidth. That's all. Uh, but if I reach out to say my Arista SE, I don't do it often. That's the other trick is you don't, I don't do it often. I don't like to, I don't want to bug him for something stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I do reach out and I say, hey, what do I think you should do this? So this is doing that. He gets back to me really quickly with good, solid answers. That's really appreciated.
3: And 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 I think part of that is because when, when the SE sees a message from you come in, he knows it's like, okay, well, Lindsay's already tried everything he can think of. It, 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 it's it's not you know oh he's a he's a last call not a first call. yeah exactly yeah I, I I have that same experience with with my vendors and my account team as well it's like you know when I send them a message it's going to be a very detailed like here's everything I've done everything I've thought of
5: yeah I've gone through all of these
3: things I've checked all the stuff what am I missing yeah, yeah. it's yeah. It, it it's just that I I, I feel that. That level of detail and precision, at least in my experience, only comes from the networking team. Maybe it's because I only I work in a networking team and I'm not exposed to the the other disciplines. But the tickets I receive, it's like you know, network problem, please fix. It's not, you know, here's the date, here's the time, here's the room number, here's the MAC address, you know, here's the application. It's Here's the things we tried. It's yeah, hmm.
1: just heaving yeah. over the wall right. I, so One I, of I the interesting
2: it. things about networking is we actually don't talk to normal people. The only people we talk to is other tech technology people, right? So we don't normally get bailed up by the user. You know, the head of uh, the head of human resources, or you know, one of the senior staff of human resources, don't ring up and say it's the network. They normally talk to the server people first or the storage people and say, I haven't got enough storage or is the storage running slow today? And I wonder if that's an impact, like, because we don't, you know, a lot of our inbounds come from other technology professionals, not from users. And does that change yeah. your perspective in any way?
4: I guess inherently we're never level one because there is, uh, you know, in an, in an enterprise, you're always going to have a service desk or something in the first instance, Right. And uh, particularly when you're dealing with people who have got a network issue, you, 90% of the time, you're probably going to be on the, um, the the second or the third person that they've spoken to, because there's probably an application on top of this that went wrong in the first place. So, um, yeah, I think that's a fair point. And to speak to the SE conversation you were just having a moment ago, you know, um, I, I, I have got some wonderful experiences recently with Nokia. Uh, compared to some very uh, poor experiences with some of my other vendors, um, and it, it really does show that uh, with a, uh, a, a well set up environment, you can actually be uh, a lot more engaging with your customers without having to actually put the same effort and the same resources. In. So when you speak to the fact that some of the uh, some of the other vendors have been cutting headcount and causing some uh, some significant mm. changes in the way they do business. It's interesting to see, uh, at least in my experience, Nokia behaving in a different way, which goes a little bit to, to my topic, which we'll get to in a bit.
5: Now, now, if only Nokia would change their sales process.
1: Oh, don't, don't. <laughs> and their don't. website. <laughs> a quick sponsor break, courtesy of Itential. Itential is the network automation platform you get to build robust, self-service automation that is safe for your entire IT organization. Now, if you've been writing your own automation, I'm guessing you've run into this problem. You have a directory. It's got a bunch of Python scripts or Ansible playbooks in it. And and yeah, they're way better than CLI copy-paste. But who besides you can safely use those scripts or run those playbooks? Hmm, It's all a bit fragile. And that makes you irreplaceable. And that's not good. You want to be able to go on vacation or be sick or have dinner without getting a call. Which means you need a network automation system that is not fragile that anyone in your organization can use and that leverages the automation work you've already done. And Itential gives you all of this. With Itential, you'll be able to run your scripts safely as a workflow that integrates with your change management, your IPAM, monitoring, your ticketing system, and anything else that you need. True network automation. Not something that just saves you some CLI time, but something that touches everything that needs updating and testing when you make a network change. And Itential is low code. You don't have to be a software developer to use it. Whether you're just getting started with network automation or you're deep down the rabbit hole with GitOps and pipelines, Itential can help. Automate from ticket creation to ticket closure with Itential. Find out more at www.itential.com packetpushers. That's www.atential.com slash packet pushers. So, John, you wanted
2: to talk about Container Lab. Apparently, you've been. Uh, so, why don't you give a description of what Container Lab is and why you're starting to find some, something to be excited about on that? Well, Container
4: Lab to me is uh, I mean, anyone who's, who's done uh, uh, listened to a bunch of uh, packet pushers recently will probably have heard a lot about Nokia and, and SR Linux and what there is they're trying to achieve. And um, I will say that uh, whilst I had an extremely positive experience when it comes to dealing with SR Linux and and particularly containlab Lab, which I want to cover, I will echo uh, not just what Lindsay said, but a number of people I've spoken to have said that Nokia need to modernise their sales process. Let's let's, uh, <laughs> let's let's put it like that. But uh, Container Lab specifically is an open source project that Nokia have stood up as part of the um, the uh, uh integration into Nokia. And the team that used to do a load of their platform stuff has uh, come together and written this application binary that will sit on a machine and interact with Docker to be able to give you containers, like not, not network operating systems as a container in a very easy to consume way. And so uh, basically you're able to create complete simulations of a, of a, of a fabric, not just with Nokia uh, operating systems. You can throw all kinds of uh, different OSs in there providing that you can wrap them up in the right way, and plumb connections between them, and go from absolute nothing to a five-stage clause fabric with 22 nodes if you've got enough CPU power in about a minute, 60 okay. seconds from nothing to everything.
1: John, you just mentioned being able to wrap those operating systems up in the right way, and it's, the name is Container Lab. am I assuming? It's got to be all Docker containers or some sort of container?
4: So there's been uh, a lot of work with a bunch of different uh, network vendors. So, for example, Arista um, and Juniper, to a lesser extent, but still there. Um, there's a there's a long list of different operating systems that aren't container net- native, where what they're doing is wrapping them up in a uh, wrapping a, um, a KVM VM into a container frame, and then throwing it into a, a container lab. So, so a VM in- inside of a container. Correct. Uh, I, even Pjopinyak has done a lot of work uh, around his NetSim project on this. And there's this project called VR NetLab that allows you to take a QMU, VM, uh, QMU image for a network operating system, feed it into a sausage maker and out comes a container on the other end that you can just throw at a contain lab. So um, I had an interesting kind of, uh, you know, I was listening to packet pushes, obviously, like everyone should. And uh, I was... Uh, you get a donut I, and, a,
2: and a lollipop for that. Yeah!
4: <laughs> um, <laughs> and I remember, I remember this vividly. I was starting, uh, literally was going for my interview for my new job. And I was listening to a show and I i, I turned up a, a day early so I could kind of do a 9am full day interview at my new place. And I was stood in a shop and you had, I think it was Roman Dedean was on, talking about Container Lab and how you uh, uh, they were able to stand up a, a fabric. And I was like, nah, that just sounds like bunkum. That's just not, it can't be real. So I uh, got back to my hotel room and went to the website and clicked a few buttons and I uh, had a fabric. Mm-hmm. And you just sit there and just uh, somewhat amazed at what just happened. Mm-hmm. I downloaded an operating system that normally would be uh, heavily protected by a sales process or uh, gatekept kept by a, a login to the the support portal. And even then, like uh, getting access to it usually requires you to grace your sales engineer with some level of donut or biscuit uh, <laughs> to be able to get uh, the permission to download the the VMX mm. or the VQFX.
2: Or pay handsomely. There's one company that wants to, uh, you know, charge a fortune to access their emulator system. Correct. There, like is, uh, thousands, there is a... Multiple thousands per year. Greg I paid for that um <laughs> did it not hurt? Own, not did it hurt was name. it mother was it mother
4: <laughs> if if you're talking about uh the uh, the corporate credit card yes yes it yes does.
2: yeah. <laughs> oh, um, that doesn't hurt at all that's that's, no.
4: <laughs> that's you know, not... I had to I had to go for a justification process by gracing my boss with some biscuits and, and, and donuts. <laughs> But it was so frustrating to be able to get access to this stuff. So if we talk back to it, uh, just touching back on what Brian said a minute ago, you know, getting access to knowledge, getting access to equipment. Uh, it, when I started in engineering, network engineering, what twenty, twenty-five, maybe 30 years ago, um, you had to go on eBay and find whatever you could find, pay, whatever it would be. And plug a load of this stuff in drain kilowatts of power in your house. Annoy the wife endlessly with the fans that are spinning and the wires that are (laughs) everywhere. And it inherently, it meant that you either needed bare metal or you needed to be able to kind of have access to a corporate environment there that the bare metal existed within. So learning as a new guy how to pick up this stuff was hard. I've got in my loft of my parents' house in London
2: probably something like
4: 20 devices. Here in Zurich, I have one.
2: Yeah. Mm. So I agree with you. Although in my days the lab uh, in Australia houses are mounted on posts; they're lifted off the ground because it keeps them cool underneath. In the part of Australia that I lived in, other parts have different ways of doing it. And I actually had a, a 19-inch rack screwed to the under the floor to lift it up off the ground, mm. and uh, it was just open to the atmosphere. And it had 30 routers mm. and switches and token ring MAUs and whatever. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So I, I, and you, when you turned it on, the whole house would vibrate.
3: The floor would vibrate
4: with all of the, the lights would go down in my house. Yeah, <laughs> it, it
3: didn't. Yeah. It was, it was inherent. So you, you so paid extra for that feature, Greg, right?
2: <laughs> <laughs> it was just, it was crazy. It was like you know, back in those days way you know when men were men and sheep were nervous. I, I guess the flip uh-huh. side here is that the other thing you're saying here is a container lab works, like it doesn't. I, it's, it's mind-bogglingly
4: like- simple mm-hmm. it's mind-bogglingly simple um literally you need a yaml file yeah, uh, yeah. which it will generate for you container lab generate uh, two two commands and here you go here's a, here's a yaml file that will work mm-hmm. so uh in terms of democratizing access to things you know uh, i mean one of my biggest things that i spoke to to ron about the other day was I really do think this is going to open up uh, access to networking to a whole new group of people that never would have got near it in a million years. Their only option would have been to to pull an FRR container or to install a few bits of software here and there and and, and glom some stuff together. You're going to need to be committed yeah. to try and learn networking using purely open source technologies. And what they've done is taken their operating system and they've thrown it out there and said, go at it. Mm. And genuinely, that is that is Let's, going to make a, a significant difference.
2: I'm actually looking at the website for containerlab.dev, which is a GitHub. So it's free and it's open. Like, And you're right. There's no reg wall. There's no, um, you're not going to be have a salesperson suddenly rock up on your doorstep because they've got your personal information. And you know it actually works for, yeah, yeah, it's surprisingly large, like not, as you say, containerized, Operating systems, there's a limited choice, SR Linux, of course, there's a containerized, um, it runs in a container, so, you know, itself. So uh, it talks about XRD, Azure Sonic, Juniper CRPD, Cumulus VX, and then it goes on to say these other ones can run. So Juniper MX, VQFX, iOS XR, Dell Ftos, uh, Arista, VEOS, the virtual version of EOS, and more like even IP and Fusion Ocnos can run in a container inside, sorry, in a VM inside a container. So there is a lot of support there. I don't know if it's vendor supported or community supported, but yeah.
4: Well, my experience so far, particularly when you start to step outside the Nokia thing, is that, yeah, okay, it's not 100% as, it, it, the experience is probably not as gold plated as it is with Nokia. Duh. Hmm. Guess what? Um, But I would would also then say that, uh, you know, while I was trying to model interactions between my existing fabric and, you know, the new one, Mm -hmm. I can take the container images or the the virtual images that I was able to grace the, the, uh, the appropriate handshake and obtain, wrap them up, put them in and make it work. So I can say, my, here's my old network, here's my new network, running on a reasonably beefy server, and I can model mm. the existing configs and start to look at where the problems might be.
2: And that and was significant. Tens, this is tens of routers you're talking about, not... Oh,
4: like, a total... The, the current one that we're modeling right now is, is nearly 50.
3: Right. On a single and, server?
4: And I'm running it on one big box. That one particularly has uh, 64 cores. 128 gigs of memory.
3: So uh, I could,
4: can... oh, it's not, not massive. No, it's not a couple of right. So, on my laptop, my Dell XPS with a uh, uh, current generation, uh, so an eighth generation i7 with 16 gigs of RAM, I can quite comfortably get to about eight nodes. So, I can do a two stage, uh, you know, couple of racks, yeah. uh, and it doesn't, you know, the fans don't even spin. Mm.
1: Well, the simplicity the of place. setting up container lab is what's grabbing my attention, John, as much as anything. I mean, I've spent lots and lots of time with both GNS3 and Eve, uh, Eve NG, and there's, you know, it's a process. It's a thing to get all that stuff up and running in either of those platforms. And there's, there's good community support and and so on, but there's there's some commitment there. Uh, I've also spent time with Cisco. What do they call it now? It's CML, I think, now that they call it. Uh, the the model, it Cisco cool. Modeling and and that's another one that just takes some time to get your head around and to make it work and um it's not it's like it's not hard but i I think i think the way you put it was there's some commitment there involved to actually get that lab off the ground and uh from what you're describing with container lab it's as simple as YAML. assuming you've got the uh the, the the nos images wrapped in an appropriate container that's compelling and interesting and you mentioned Yvonne's project too along the way which is another one that I've been meaning to check out because it's supposed to make it simpler to get your configs up off the ground if I remember right
4: yeah Net, netsim uh, uh, builds upon ContainerLab lab along with a bunch of other things and uh, Yvonne being Yvonne you know it, it is uh, well thought out and well structured and deals with a specific problem like you say of you know how do I how do I prove that something works the way it's supposed to work without having uh, a, a building full of equipment? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that was interesting was, uh, you know, to, uh, to touch back on, on, on what we said at the start, where, you know, unfortunately, Nokia sales process was a bit awkward. I found myself walking away at one point and I was spending all my time looking at the incumbents, but I was still trying to use container lab to actually model what I was trying to model. I was trying to simulate my environment by using net, uh, container lab or NetSim as a tool to be able to then uh, simplify my job of going from nothing to something and verifying that what I've done is right. Because it's very easy for you while you've got something like a GNS3 uh, where it does take some time to get it right or even worse with a bare metal environment. On a Monday, you might make a change. And then on a Tuesday, you'll make another change. And then on a Wednesday, you'll make 10 changes. And then on Monday next week, you can't remember what you did and didn't do. And then you make something else and you break it. And the problem is the, uh, you know, you're then dumping configs and diffing things and, and uh, sadness occurs because you can't, you know, your brain is just broken. The great thing about container lab is that you can destroy the thing and recreate it so quickly that you get close to immutable configuration. You write your config at the beginning, you say what it is you want it to be. You boot the environment up and it comes up with that configuration. And the closest configuration kind of similarity I can come up to is in the server world is cloud init, where you have a VM and you feed it a cloud init file. It comes up, it, it does whatever the cloud init file told it to do, and then you don't touch it ever again. Stay okay. the hell away from it. This is the one of the one, things that I've, I, I was using SRL instances that I wasn't planning on buying to emulate the internet or to uh, pretend to be a DCI. Because yeah. it was easier for me to just stand that box up, throw some configured it with GNMI, and have it be something else while I focus on how I'm going to make this uh, fabric component, which was not Nokia, to work. Okay. And it just made my life so simple that I I'd kind of eventually I was dealing with the guys in their Discord chat. Yeah. Um. And again, talking to the sales engineer conversation, you know, are you, there is a Discord channel for SR Linux, and there's a Discord channel for Container Lab. And inside yeah. the Container Lab one, there's lots and lots of different uh, channels for the different operating systems.
0: Right. You just so go in there it's...
4: and say, I've got a problem with my uh, arista And people Can will you help you. Me? Yeah,
2: right. and it's
4: other community members. It's other engineers. So, so you're
2: obviously really big. So basically your topic that you wanted to bring us is that people should be going out and trying Container Lab. Absolutely.
4: Because yeah. I think the, uh, the, the, the two points that it's going to bring here is one is um the end users are, are are able to do something they couldn't do before you know you can get access to mm. something you couldn't get access to before but the other thing is it just makes us more efficient and it actually comes yeah. up with some new ideas for how we want to configure our our platform
2: because and... i like what you wrote in the in the notes you said even if you have no interest in nokia products container lab takes away the pain of instantiating an isolated lab setup for interactive use yeah. or orchestrated through pipelines. That's interesting because you, as you say, you're configuring with GNMI to come back to a baseline. And then yeah. with the uncertainty around future of projects like Batfish and the costs involved in vended, emulation solutions, having this democratizes access. So anybody can have the opportunity uh, to not just validate changes, but also to learn things that would otherwise be trapped behind a gatekeeper, some sort yeah. of gatekeeper. Mm. Yeah. That is so a powerful, powerful option.
3: So I, I want to ask, John, um, I, I've never actually used Container Lab, but it sounds like I need to give it a try. Um, and, and maybe this this next comment is coming from my background as a, a bit of a, a salty layer one engineer. It, it sounds like Container Lab is fantastic at emulating and simulating the software aspects of a network, but has it really done anything to emulate the hardware? You know, Can it actually model... Tcam or you know layer one layer two aspects of a configuration. You know I I I get that you know you can sit and make routing policies and run BGP and software all day, but if I'm going to take the time to lab something up, I I want to know that I'm not going to be bitten by a layer one layer two configuration issue once I go to put it into production. So I guess does container lab take any of the physical or the 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 link layer? into account as well or is this purely just layer 3 and above
4: the, uh, uh it's a complicated question to answer there is a couple of different aspects there but to take the first one uh, you know um obviously it's just software you can't emulate um the the ASIC underneath because it can't so um one thing that uh, is is fair to say is that at least in the nokia setting you know i am thoroughly reassured it's the same binaries running on the box that runs on the switch so you can, I found a bug, they fixed it, and it was an actual bug. Mm. Um, and I only found it in ContainerLab. Uh, the mm-hmm. other thing is that uh, when you get into the, um, for example, we programmed ACLs into the thing to see what would happen, and the numbers that the Container lab instance gave us was the same as when we actually tried it on the hardware. How are they doing that? I don't know. Witchcraft. Honestly, <laughs> no idea.
2: The ASIC and the API are probably, the way that um, SLNX talks to the ASIC underneath is probably consistent. So if you think about how the software works, um, so Broadcom is still carrying a lot of legacy in its APIs when it comes forward. And so depending on how the, you know, whether it's Sonic or whoever's running the operating system on top, they may be talking via a legacy API or they may be talking via a newer API. And those APIs drive performance inside of the ASIC is my understanding. I've asked that question before. Yeah. All right, I, I do want to move on. We've got one more topic that we wanted to cover today. Lindsay, you wanted to argue that 400 gig and 800 gig is good for you, but sucks to be everybody else.
5: It's, it's uh, like 400 gig's good. It's more about don't feel bad if you're not doing it. There's a lot of talk, you know, you read everyone, every vendor's announcing, I've got this 800 gig router and I've got, you know, 56 ports of 800 gig and 4RU or whatever it is, and you're thinking, oh, mm-hmm. I'm only using 10 gig on my switches still, and it's actually really kind of hard to get the service to just even move to 25 gig. You, maybe you feel bad and you think, oh, oh, everyone else is doing it. I'm getting left behind. I'm in this sad little corner of networking. Well, in my case, I actually really do need 400 gig. Um, running a CDN is a pretty big part of what I do. But take a look at some of the public information that's out there. So look at, say, Lynx, which is a big internet exchange in London. Mm -hmm. great bunch of people generally very happy with them so they were talking about 400 gig in 2021 they then made it available to customers in 2022 as of july so last month uh, as we're recording they had four customer facing 400 gig ports as of now it is at least six and i know this because i have two of two i have added two there um but but so you think about that. Lynx is a pretty big internet exchange. A lot of participants. There are yeah. around about six customer facing 400 gig ports. So, you know, don't, I need it. Mm-hmm. Most people probably don't, don't feel too bad if you don't have it. Um, <laughs> also, also in the, and the aspect, just on the other side, there's a lot of talk and not always as much action. So M6 mm. and NLX have been talking up 400 gig
2: for a while. That's There's
5: Amsterdam un- and the Netherlands. Yeah, Amsterdam yep. and the Netherlands. Sorry, internet two, exchanges, yeah. Two of the big internet exchanges there that do multiple terabits of traffic, lots of participants. It was only last month that the routers that I'm connected to there have got 400 gig ports on them. So they just, just changed that in the last month. So hmm. you read the press releases and everyone says they're doing it, but eh, when you actually go and ask for it, oh, no, that's not ready yet. Or the, yeah. all of the big transits that I connect to. So I do lots of hundred gig connections to transits. You'll all of them will have a press release out there talking about four hundred and eight hundred gig. When it actually comes to me and you say, Okay, can I get that four hundred gig connection in say Ashburn? Oh, uh uh nah, no, nah, it's only, only available in Denver at the moment. So, How
4: <laughs> would they not do Ashburn?
5: Uh <laughs> but they might by now, but when I last I asked I sure, couldn't get I what I wanted. Say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, mean, think,
2: I think the thing about about 400 and 800 gig ethernet, as best as I could determine, there's really only a handful of companies that are using it. And that's basically, you know, Google, AWS, Azure, Oracle, and so forth. Or you're a very, very, again, a niche site doing some sort of high performance computing or maybe some AI or, you know, whatever it is that you, but it's not. Everybody that needs it, it's not a you know. Here's the thing about: my, I actually have a four G. Uh, I, I use a mobile often, running off mobile bandwidth. I don't have five G. I just have four G. because they wanted to charge me extra, and I don't really need the difference between thirty meg and fifty meg or whatever, right? Just how much faster do you really want to go? In as you said, a lot of people still haven't even gotten off ten gig for servers. They still. There's no justification to go to 25 there, or even, you know, there's still
5: there's still a, at scale there's still a significant price difference between the 10 gig and the 25 gig NICs in the servers, hmm. and the and the 25 gig NIC that I like the one of the Intel models is getting a little bit hard to get right now, hmm. um, and so you go Oh, well I'll just keep running at 10 gig that's yeah. and and yes people, yes at you and I know. But underneath it all, it all costs exactly the same to manufacture 25 gig as a 10 gig today. But the vendors also go, ah, it's a bigger number. I can sell that for more. So 25, uh,
4: 25 gig <laughs> irritates me as well, more than anything else, because of all the flex settings. Uh,
5: <laughs> so, uh, yeah, grumpy
4: <laughs> grumpy network guy <laughs> over there <in> the corner. <laughs>
5: but
4: it, One of the most unusual things, and this is like weird nerd flex moment, I have 25 gigabit internet in my house. Yeah. Because uh, Init7, a small niche nerd
2: ISP... Not megabit, here, it, gigabit, just to emphasize that. Gigabit.
4: Yes. Init7 are a little niche ISP here in Switzerland who, um, they uh, decided to do a big upgrade on all of their access points. And they decided to buy Cisco 9500 switches. Hmm. And uh, uh, they, while they were looking at the cost benefits, they're like, well, why don't we just get the one that does 25 gig and sell that? And everyone went, why? Who needs 25 gigabits in their house? And uh, Pascal, the CTO, quite famously turned around and says, so what? (laughs) We're going to buy the box anyway. Let's plug it in. So they end up setting up these 100 gigabit loops in the local area. And they're the kind of people who probably one day will desperately need a 400 gigabit port in Zurich 1 and in Equinix in ZH5 and stuff like that. No,
2: they won't. Nobody will be sending that much traffic. You can have all the bandwidth in the local loop, but does anybody generate like...
3: If you're thing. running a
2: 4K Netflix, assuming you're paying the extra license fee, right, to get 4K, you're still not, you, that's only, what, 12 meg, I think it is, for a 4K stream?
4: I just got my traffic graphs up and I do about 20 megabit.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so 25 gig is what? A thousand percent over-engineered or something? Yeah, like, but it's the, mm.
4: this is what I love about uh, Init 7. It's the same price if I get one.
2: Oh, no, I understand.
4: Yeah, Well 25. Oh, yeah, I understand. Thing. But I mean, I, I,
3: think, <laughs> I, I think having the, the bandwidth um, uh, available enables the end user to do a whole lot more. I, I remember uh, several years ago, I really wanted to retire my, my home backup solution. You know, I had a small NAS with a couple of drives. The drives are starting to fail. And it's like, I really don't want to maintain this thing anymore. So I, I, I signed up for a trial uh, of a cloud backup software. And my upload speed and my home connection was just so slow I couldn't complete one backup in the 30 day trial so
5: yeah, yeah you yeah. need to you need to, like there's so many plans so many home internet ones the upload is is just terrible like i'm mm-hmm. i'm lucky I've got symmetric one gig, so yeah. it's you know that, that's great, but a lot of people it's twenty meg thirty meg up, and that
3: that's going to be a constraint that's barely cutting it yeah i mean i I, I recently I recently upgraded to symmetric gig, and it's like, yeah, now i'm now I'm really leveraging cloud storage for everything. and it, it's fantastic and And I think you know for for businesses who, once the bandwidth is available it it's going to open some doors to start doing things that were previously not even a consideration.
2: Well, no. you've just summarized the entire value proposition of uh, co-location, mm. right. Because you can go to a colo and get access to almost an infinite amount of bandwidth. And you can turn it on and off at speed, which is mostly just turning it on. You know, I've got a one gig internet connection. Now I want two, five, ten, twenty, right? You can almost just scale it up. Uh, yeah. So but, but, but imagine one, if once, I...
5: once you go beyond that, um mm. I gotta get capacity checks and things when I want more hundred gigs out <laughs> my
2: providers. Yeah, well, when you're buying in lumps <laughs> of a hundred gig, yeah, you probably will, see, but yeah, so but my 100%. point is is that Bandwidth is its own reward. You know, you might have heard me saying that before. More bandwidth is a reward, but there is a point at which more bandwidth just becomes uh, valueless. Is my point, I think.
5: One of one of the other things that that drives four hundred gig for us say, is cost of cross connects. Equinix mm-hmm. um, oh, charges an almighty amount of money to run a fiber across the building, Um and if you happen to be on, in a building where there's DRT on one floor and you're on Equinix and you're going through the Meet Me room, and suddenly you're paying a huge amount. So, if I can switch from, say, two by 200 to two by 400, I've reduced my cross connect charges quite a bit. Why don't you sort. run some
2: DWDM over that? Get some IP you coherent can. optical transceivers so, and slam it.
5: Well, it's easier in a lot of places to just run 400 gig direct and get mm, rid of the yeah. DWDM. And that's sort of where we've been going anyway. Mm. Um, that's that's just a lot simpler and cheaper. Um, other places we use DWDM where we need to use it. It's hmm. it's expensive to get some of the kit if you need the active gear. Um, it's not a great story for management. What about uh, so companies
2: like Juniper and Cisco have introduced, and Nokia, um, yeah. have introduced coherent optical modules that you can put straight into their routers? Yeah, uh, it's, limits, it's,
5: yeah. yeah, it's there and there's implications from doing that and you've got port restrictions and you've got to be on the right models and it's it's a good story. It In practice, you might say, oh, I just run native 400 gig. If I can get away with LR, it's fine. Mm. But for me, say if I'm connecting to another company and, and say I'm in Equinix in Seattle and I want to connect to someone yeah. in DRT. I can't run DWDM across to there because I don't have, I don't have space on the other side. Yeah. So instead I'm just paying yeah. these huge cross connect fees. Um, it's, but, but the, the broader point though, is like, like I said, for most people don't listen to me talk about my bandwidth challenges and feel bad because I'm a weird niche. And most
2: people, it's <laughs>
5: like, I mean, even for me, I mean, most stuff we do is the numbers are big, but it doesn't necessarily mean my problems are, uh, Figure or different, it might just mean same problems or maybe even simpler, simpler issues to deal with. It's just purely at a larger bandwidth number. But actually, yeah, this is
2: you know this is something you and I have discussed uh, in person when we used to meet in the before times. Yeah. Is that you know the difference between a hundred node network and a thousand node network is not ten times; it's only about twice as hard. Yeah. and it's mostly to do with you know getting stuff to where it needs to be or administration tasks it, because. Most of it is a template and you just duplicate it out.
5: Yeah.
2: yeah. If, I,
4: if I can take Lindsay's point and downscale it to a, like a, a more kind of regular data center environment, the difference between 10 and 25 gig on the server end is uh, almost not the cost. Because as as you say, you know, the uh, the Intel NICs or the Mellanox NICs that do this, you know, that that's... Mm there are 10 slash 25 you buy it you get it but um there is a material cost to you as a network engineer uh in terms of uh minutes spent or uh, or or missing from the end of your life because of effect settings and the length of the cable
5: Uh, trying to get the right bloody intel firmware and is this a dell card or is this an intel one and oh oh,
4: (laughs) public service announcement uh, I, I absolutely guarantee you That someone listening to this right now Has probably got a FEC problem That they don't have misdiagnosed Or doesn't know exists Go and read <laughs> Go and read what uh, what FEC settings That's forward error correction You yeah. should have on your 25 gig DACs Depending on the length of
2: the cable Because they change according to the length Which is one of the weirdest things in the world That is not intuitive when that happens yeah. and This, is, this well, gentlemen, is the thing Uh, We're running out of time for today, I'd like to start thinking about wrapping it up, so why don't we go around the table and why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet if you want to, or if not, just tell them that you don't want to be found.
4: I already told everyone where my website was because, uh, uh, yeah, problemofnetwork.com, and I'm known as Fat Red everywhere on the internet for complex personal size issues.
3: Yeah, you, uh, you can find me at bryanward.net, B-R-Y-A-N-W-A-R-D. Uh, when I have time, I occasionally write down some thoughts or talk about an interesting problem I've encountered. Um, you can find me on the Packet Pushes Slack, which I'm sure Ethan and Greg will plug once we're all done here. Um, <laughs> and I'm I'm still, I'm too lazy to jump ship from uh, from the the formerly Bird-themed app. So you might find me on there still. Come to Blue Sky, it's great. No, I'm just going <laughs> to give up on social media.
5: I'm tired <laughs> <Yeah>. of it. <laughs> yeah, that's the story, man. I'm still... <laughs> my my website's lkhill.com where I occasionally write about random things I encounter along the way at work, and dealing with random juniper and arista bits and pieces. I am still technically on the site formerly known as Twitter, but not on there a huge amount these days. I could push a slack, you usually find me there. Uh If you've got random questions about how STEAM works or whatever, reach out. That's cool.
2: Thanks. Uh, And, yes, everybody here comes from the the Slack channel. That's how we recruited today's victims. Uh, I was able to reach out to them and chat to them about what they're doing and invite them to come on the show. Maybe if you would like to come on a future um, roundtable, tell us a story about pick your one pain point or pick your one happy point. It's nice of John to come on and talk about something that really, really worked for him. It's not always we get to find a happy talk. Um, and have a happy, happy slappy time congratulating each other on something actually going right. Thanks very much to my colleague, Ethan Banks, for being the legend that he is and putting up with me and uh, running running producer mode today. Lots of contributions there, Ethan. Why don't you tell people where they can find you on the internet?
1: LinkedIn, these days, that's the best place to find me. Uh, You can find, just search for Ethan Banks. You'll find me there. Connect, you can follow me or connect as you like, and I'm posting briefing summaries and uh, other things is where I'm at. Hmm.
2: I'm Greg Farrow. Thanks so much for listening to us today. You can find me on Twitter as Mind, but like most people, it's become a uh, less pleasant place to go right about now. So I'm starting to wind up my presence on LinkedIn. And of course, you can join us on the Packet Pushes Network for many more fine-free technical podcasts. We have seven channels of content, including Heavy Wireless, which is Keith Parsons talking about wireless, Heavy Strategy, where I take on a consultant and we go head-to-head to argue two sides of designing an enterprise IT strategy. It's kind of fun. I enjoy it. And we have a whole range of other podcasts along with you know, Network Break as well and so on. And Day 2 Cloud, even for those of you who are the cloud aficionados. Don't forget to follow us on the social medias if you like. But it would really help if you would give us a rating. If you could head on over to whatever podcast tool you use, give us a rating. That'd be lovely. Give us some feedback. If you ever want to let us know what, to, what you're thinking, packetpushes.net slash fu to give us some follow-up tell us what you're thinking. It's all anonymous. We don't need to know. And of course, if you want to join the Slack channel, which they talked about, packetpushes.net slash Slack. And as always, remember that too much networking would never be enough.